This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. It's impossible to have a conversation about AI or machine learning without also talking about neural networks. The thing is, most of us think we know what AI is, and some of us have an opinion on what machine learning is, but very few people actually know what a neural network is, why it matters. Do these networks evolve like the human brain? What are the ethical implications of building an infrastructure like that? Are they secure? My conversation today is with Sergey Pliss, a professor of computer science at Georgia State University and the director of machine learning at the Center for Translational Research in Neuroimaging and Data Science. He and his collaborators received funding recently from the NSF and the NIH to study casual connections in the brain. Obviously, Sergey likes to keep things busy. Please enjoy this incredible and fascinating conversation on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data. How we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS experience. Can we start here, which is what is a neural network? Before I try to explain what I think it is, why don't you tell me and my audience what we should think about when we think of the phrase neural network. I hope we mean artificial neural networks, I, right? Because, however well, we you have, mean it. We have at least <laughs> two types, right? Okay, we well, have, what are the two types? Well, we have the, the type that we have in our brains, right. and those are neural networks, right. and very simple right. neurons, uh, right. cells, uh, computational special kind of cells that form networks, talk to each other, and they they live to talk to each other, they form networks, we know, right. put them in petri dish and they get together to form a network. That's a neural network. Okay. And so Fair when enough. you, when you call, tell neuroscientists, oh, I'm doing neural network research, they're like, what? This is neural network. This is artificial neural network, <laughs> right. something else. Right. So if That's what I mean. Yeah, AI. artificial neural yeah. networks. Yes, artificial neural networks are kind of modeled uh, from the... Uh, those living systems, uh, real neural networks, right. uh, or in, rather inspired, they're very far from it. If you want a like, uh, uh, simplistic, uh, dismissive uh, view on it, mm. well, it's just a b- b- bunch of summation and, and uh, nonlinear operations, so stacked on top of each other. Right. So you take the input, which is a vector or a list of values, mm-hmm. you multiply them with coefficients, sum them up, and apply a non-linearity. For example, you say if it's negative, mm-hmm. set it to zero. If it's positive, just pass it on. And treat whatever is passed on as another list, another vector. And if you draw all of those weights and multiplications as, as connections, you see a, a net, a graph, like mm-hmm. okay, one layer, and then all of the connections flowing into the next layer, another layer, another layer. Oh, look, this re- resembles a neural network, right. it, uh, because because a perceptron, uh, a real uh, perceptron, live perceptron cell, integrates the inputs from other neurons surrounding it uh, that comes through dendrites, mm-hmm. and then makes a decision uh, to fire or not to fire, and produces an output through the axon. Hmm. So our artificial neural network is kind of like that, sums the input, integrates the input, and then passes it through nonlinearity, so kind of decides to fire or not to fire. It's very, very different, very remote. Right. But but uh, yeah, that's 
um, functional explanation of right. okay how it is uh, how it is structured. But a neural network is um, also a pattern recognition um, device, I would say, mm-hmm. or. There are multiple views. Tell me if right. I uh, if I, no, need to I, I go I, into you're it. inspiring a hundred questions. I guess the first is um, as I'm thinking about this, what when we're talking about um, f- for the sake of this conversation, let's just say whenever we say neural networks, we mean artificial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, AI I'm, I'm, neural I'm networks. Happy. Yeah, I'm happy. But <laughs> but the real ones will come up. Right, right. Because sure they, they will. Yeah. And and I'll call that out specifically. But I guess what I'm curious is, as you describe it, it seems to me in my ignorance, well, haven't we always had, have hasn't the goal of, whether it's computer science or uh, mathematical computation tools to have... Um, you, you know, a model like that. I've only heard the term neural network has really come into my lexicon in the, I would say in the last five years, maybe the last 10, kind of the ragged edge. But really in the last five years, I see it everywhere. It's usually related to um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and these things and this network. Why? First, how long has something resembling what we would call a neural network been around? And then why is it that we're looking at how the human brain thinks, quote unquote, thinks, and why is why why do we feel like that's today anyway the right way to leverage a computation model for machines? So first, how long have they been around, and how, or have they been called other names? And secondly, why are we pursuing this path um, as opposed to maybe some other paths, or maybe we're doing a number of things, uh, you know, at the same time simultaneously? So I'll. I'm curious. Uh, okay, how long have they been around? I think the ideas of this sort in exactly this form uh, or part of this mm-hmm. were around since the 1950s and okay. 1960s. Um, Rosenblatt introduced a perceptron with the and well, one one kind of goes into another. Why they've been around that long, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, originally, perceptron. It's a Building, let's think of it as a building block of a neural network okay. or a single neuron. Okay. Uh, been introduced in 1960s, 1968, if I'm not mistaken. And the idea was that this is something that we can train. Uh, that is not something that we program by telling it uh, rules or conditions or if then else. Mm-hmm. And like in this situation, do this. And right. this, like, you're an expert, you decide uh, right. how it goes. But, but instead, we will show it examples and we will show it, okay, if this happens, do this. If mm-hmm. this happens, do that. Mm-hmm. But examples, not mm-hmm. rules. Mm-hmm. And then when you show something that it hasn't seen, it does what it's supposed to do. So that mm-hmm. that's kind of the dream. So it draws some logical conclusion. It says, based upon previous decisions, even though... This next thing doesn't model it exactly. It's close enough that I can make a guess, and we hope an accurate guess, that the right decision here is to choose or to not choose something. Is that correct? Yeah, to to produce uh, one kind of output or another kind of output. Okay. Uh, that's the decision that is made inside of a neural network. But okay. at the time, in the 60s, it was a very primitive neural network. We we know everything about it. We know when it works, when it doesn't work, what kind of data it can be trained on, what kind of data. Right. But let's not go there okay. yet. But okay. but then yeah. Uh, so 
the word neural network wasn't still there. That was still a perceptron. Okay. Uh, but then uh, immediately people demonstrated. Uh, uh, Simon Poppert and Marvin Minsky wrote a book, Perceptrons, where they demonstrated uh, with lots of proofs when this specific perceptron will not work. Theoretically, impossible to get it to work in certain situation like uh, XOR problem, for example. So, if uh, your data, your examples that you wanted to separate, say dogs versus cats, right. or I don't know, axis versus the Z number versus... nine from a B. Exactly, exactly. Right. So, so, some of those things are provably non separable by a perceptron. Okay. But then people immediately figured out well, uh, let's take multiple perceptrons. No, 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 the brain. I, and I say right. real, but let's use biological, right? right? Sure. Uh, like the, the, the brain consists right. of multiple neurons. So let's put them together and then stack them layer by layer. So in the 60s, early 70s, people started doing that, mm -hmm. but um, it was very hard to train. And mm. this Just is a, like a person. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, hopefully. Actually, it's a, it's a, just a, just an insight, uh, right. like a, some something off topic. Hopefully, like the the dream is that we will create our AI or our machines that we don't program anymore, but we just train them, and we right. don't train them like now with big data, millions, millions of example, but right. examples, but sort of closer to a kid or right. to a intern. Right. We say buy this new AI, bring it to a new place of work, and right. say, okay, well. You haven't seen anything like that, but see this and this and that. Do this, show right. them once, and then they can uh, they can do. It. That's the dream. <laughs> that reminds me of. I'm pretty sure it was Dr. Wolpe who is uh, head of ethics at Emory, and I don't remember if it was in our conversation or a conversation I listened to him. But he said, um, not about neural networks specifically, but about learning. We underestimate how much human beings learn by being in proximity to other human beings in a, like when a child's in a, a young child's in a classroom, for example, in kindergarten. Sure, you've got your lessons of reading and writing or whatever, but they're also acclimating as they watch behavior, whether they participated in it or not, that is rewarded, that is disciplined, that is um, beneficial, that's like all of these other things because it's they're observing, like, and we just... We, there's so many things that we think of later as right or wrong that was not taught to somebody, but it was observed or, you know, do this behavior, not that behavior, however they came to that conclusion. And that, that's spectacularly powerful and in the past had been underestimated. It wasn't that it was dismissed. It was just, we just, you know, as we're trying to create artificially these things that happen naturally the amount of work that happens where it's not a lesson, it's just being observed is a tremendous amount of things. Is that similar to what you're talking about? Or am I way off track? Uh, yeah, yeah, that that is similar. Um, but we, the idea that, that you're describing is yeah. kind of comes and goes. It's, people are aware of it, right. but it's sort of... Um, you don't want difficulties to prevent you from making small steps. Sure. And so in science, and I guess everywhere in human um, endeavors, we mm -hmm. know the huge goal, the map, but we uh, decide to be narrow at times. And right. like, okay, let's attack just this problem. Let's right. make just this little step. Right. So yes, we know that it would be great. 
like 2006, a, a science paper by Ruslan Salahuddinov and Jeff Hinton talked just about that, used a simple model. It's also a neural network, mm-hmm. uh, but um, uh, something called autoencoder, something that learns to uh, generate back what it was just fed in, but with a bottleneck, just okay. a little introduction on autoencoder. But there, I, I remember the idea I read there uh, mm-hmm. that um, basically... You see something and you try to reproduce it. You see something that you try to reproduce. No one told you this is a microphone. No one told you, okay, this is this, this mm-hmm. is that. But by by like the kids mm-hmm. in the kindergarten or in surrounding by environment, mm-hmm. they're observing and they're building their internal model of the world. Mm-hmm. They don't know what it is, mm-hmm. but they already know, okay, those things like with two legs, they kind of go together. Sometimes they yell at me. Sometimes they give me food. <laughs> right. Those things like it's it's right. like there is no verbal concept. Right. But things group. Right. And then uh, yeah, and here's my here's my chance to talk about uh, my kids. Yeah. I, I had a little kid at the time. We'll get and lots of chances like, to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like I, it, it's so fun to observe those things in in babies how they learn. Right. It's like they already built a world, and then. You kind of point, and I was like, I, I'm holding my baby. I'm pointing to like uh, something. I think, okay, this is a dog. Right. Next time she sees a cat, she's like, a dog. I'm like, no, that's a cat. And this is just one. I like right. she already has that. Okay, those classes are similar, right? Right. Like some some kind of groups, four leg things. Right. But they're different, sort of. But they're together. Right. And when I said a dog, oh, like everything is a dog there. Right. But then we're like, well, this is a cat. And then she, I, I assume, well, it, I, I don't think it's conscious, but right. we kind of th- think, oh, okay, those two groups actually right. un- ungroup together. So yeah. that we we want that we're we're nowhere near that yet, yeah. but we want that that our mm, algorithms right. uh, or models or right. robots. They learn without our guidance as much, and only little guidance, uh, little uh, little input from people. Because well, we can't we can't be telling, this is this, this is this, this is iPhone, this is iPhone at a different angle. Right. This is also iPhone. We, we, like there is no effort, like no right. one can do it. But so so we want just as little effort as possible from us to guide the learning, yeah. and the the system would learn by itself. One but, of the things we learned the hard way with our kids was, and you just reminded me of this, if I trust something, so they see me with, in your example, the dog or the cat, um, and they see me towards something that I've categorized as a dog, let's just say, um, or cat, doesn't matter, but I, I walk up and I pet them and I have this experience with them, their go-to move when they were young, at their youngest age that they could interact was 100% trust. Well, then that's a dog. And I can 100% trust that I can walk over and pet, pull, you know, inter- it might not, they might not have thought that way, but I can interact with this. Um, and it is um, like nothing, there's nothing bad, there's no, there's no risk that I have, that I'm trying to mitigate, right? I just do it. And we had to learn very quickly, no, you know, not all dogs are created equal. By the same token, I see this even now that my children are in their 20s. My, they still trust you? Very little. <laughs> but here's something that I've learned. I have no fear of bugs of any kind, of any number of legs, of any number of eyes, of any size or shape, spiders, uh, anything, no rodents, no snake. Like they just, but my mother in law um, was Japanese and she, grew, and she taught um, 
uh, not superstition, but just uh, she she was af- deathly afraid of certain types of bugs. My wife, deathly afraid, and she is a dangerous woman. She's half Japanese and half Irish. I've been married 35 years. I'm 6'3", 280 pounds. I'm not, I don't even get a guess at her weight, but she's petite. And um, if a cockroach comes in the room, she will lose her mind. She goes back to six years old. My daughters now all have this visceral reaction to this thing. Somehow they got associated with this that's terrifying. So they learned it at their earliest level. They had no interaction, I'm sure, with it other than their mom's reaction and their grandmother's reaction. And so it's interesting. And I, no matter how much I try to unwind that fear, I don't even try to unwind it anymore, Sergey. I just go in and kill the bug and throw it away and Motor move bugs. on because it's just an argument. Is it, I mean, have you, is there a explanation for that or is it just part of the human condition and do we have to guard against neural networks can they learn the same kind of junk accidentally and can we unprogram they can learn a lot of junk (laughs) yes 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 uh and uh, well that's actually a huge problem that people are talking about that maybe um so okay where we are now that you are starting to hear about neural networks from from any, I don't know, uh, vacuum cleaner or every right. vacuum Everywhere. cleaner. Everywhere, yeah. Like it's like from, from every uh, fridge, uh, right. you open it up and it's right. neural networks and everything. So why did that happen? Well, because uh, rem- if you remember, but uh, market has very short memory. Yeah. Before neural networks, the word was big data. Oh, big data, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it was everything big data, big data. Right. And then suddenly neural networks. And uh, turns out that um, with big data, there's... Uh, old, old models that were uh, mostly developed in the 80s and then like, like we kind of forgot them and then came back to them and right. developed them even further now. They are the models that can benefit the most from the big data. They, like, uh, tradi- the, the, well, just a step back, uh, 1960s, 1970s, started this idea uh, of learning in general, not just with neural networks. What mm-hmm. kind of algorithms we can we can develop? Um, a lot of understanding came in, uh, like we we arrived at a lot of understanding of how things work, what is learnable, what is not learnable, what does it mean to learn, what does it mean to learn with certain guarantees. Lots of algorithms. Neural networks were became just one of the possibilities, just mm-hmm. one of the algorithms. There were a group of people who were still pushing them and uh, arguing that they are the best way to go if mm-hmm. we are going to go for AI, but um, there were other other ways. Okay. But those other ways uh, were specifically tailored with um, to work with small data, like with the date, because they were not, right. the, the data is never enough. It's still never enough. But there was some kind of... Um, desire or engineering um, momentum to make them work on small data. And as an accident, I guess as an accident, they turned out to be unable to work with large data or benefit from large large data. Like there is a saturation point for for many, many algorithms uh, that are not neural networks. And for neural networks, often we see that the more data you throw at them, the better they become. Mm -hmm. So then... uh, and I, I, I actually I forgot a little bit like where I started from. But uh, when when you have a lot of right. data, you can you can train uh, the neural network. Show an example. Show a label. Show an example. Right. A label is a lingo for whatever the network needs to produce. Okay. And then okay, now I, I know I know where I am. Why I'm there. So with lots of data and lots of labels, we see that neural networks reach um, 
human level, this human level, that in 1912, there was a contest for street sign uh, recognition from Jürgen Schmidhuber Group in um, Europe, uh, in Switzerland, and they uh, achieved human level or ups above human level performance mm. at the street sign recognition. And then we, we achieved many of these things uh, above human level or at human level performance mm. in many things. Mm. But then we, when, when we look at, wait a second, are they actually seeing what we're, we're seeing? Are they hearing what we're hearing? Mm -hmm. Or are they paying attention to what we're paying attention? Mm -hmm. Turns out, absolutely not. Up, up, the best neural network I forgot the year when we figured that out. Uh, the best neural network that gives you super good performance. This is a, that street sign. This is this street mm -hmm. sign. Go to the street sign or take the picture mm -hmm. and put a white square on a, in a random but care mm -hmm. seemingly random but mm -hmm. carefully chosen spot on a stop sign. Mm -hmm. And now it's suddenly a speed limit sign. It doesn't see a stop sign anymore. Or it says it's a giraffe yeah. or something. It, it We learned that as you said, it learns junk. Right. Or not only it can learn junk, it does learn junk. Right. It's not like we don't understand how we learn. Right. For for all in all, like you don't know what's going on in my head, right? right. You just think I'm right. sentient, but right. who knows? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I've had that experience playing poker. I think <laughs> I know what's going on in their head. What you, you reminded me of, um, I, can't, I can't remember the professor's name. He was talking about robotics. And in our lab, he talked about, um, it's with Stevens Institute, I know I remember it, I apologize, professor, talked about how they made all these breakthroughs with robots. Then they took them out to the field and they did nothing. They were paralyzed and they couldn't figure it out. And then they realized in our lab, all the walls are white. The environment to the robots, when we took them with a blue sky and you know all these other things, they had no. They're just caught in this loop of ah. Uh, I, I have a good, a good yeah. uh, myth or joke. Uh, I don't know if it's true or not. It's in the Cold War. Um, the, the, those models were trained to recognize uh, Soviet tanks, uh -huh. and the system worked perfectly. Right. As, as exactly. Right. The, uh, it, I think it's an urban legend, but okay. it's, it's a good one. And so the, then they took it to the field. Right. Nothing, and then they figured out on all of the pictures where you had Soviet tanks. Uh -huh was gloomy and kind of like right. dark and like a Mordor. <laughs> exactly and, <laughs> and uh, yeah where there were no Soviet tanks nice blue sky right. and everything so they just learned if there is blue sky there are no tanks right so. isn't that isn't that and we don't even realize at the time we're doing it yeah. and the human brain many times is able to sort through that for, for, you know not perfectly obviously but um, anyway I didn't mean to interrupt you but it's yeah. it's these you change a thing we think it's recognizing, oh, I can see, or it's grainier or whatever, and it's, um, and it's not. It's, it's, it, that small change can completely um, interrupt it. Well, I, but I, I, it's all fun and jokes, but I have to be fair to the yeah. researchers who are doing it. Yeah. It mostly happens if you're not careful. And um, like, for example, it, um, in, it's in statistics. It's all it's called confounding factors. You didn't account for all of the confounding factors with okay. the tank example, okay. or with your wide background example. Right. In machine learning, now we call like we use uh, what we call data augmentation. So we try to perturb our data, such uh, training data, um, such that um, the irrelevant parts for us that we know are irrelevant right. con con 
changing in a wide range. It right. doesn't matter. Like if this is a cat, it doesn't matter where it's sitting. It doesn't matter whether it's grainy, whether right. it's rice and white noise, right. or it's blurry or not. It's still a cat. Right. So we, but that that that's the difference between the like a kid. Right. And our current machines. Our right. current machines, you have to show all of those examples that those things don't matter. It's still a cat. For, right. for a kid, you, you don't have to, right, to right. show all of the examples of a cat yeah. just once. And then even in the dark, if they step on it, they know who's yelling, you know. <laughs> it's, um, um, it, it's terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. But let me let me ask you this. As we're walking through, this is sort of how they work. I want to come back to, you were talking about data, big data. In in my business, the data center business, um, we house, in my, my particular company is what we call mega data centers. And it's just an industry term that means a lot of the very biggest companies on earth, the e-commerce, cloud computing, um, social media. So tens of thousands, if not millions of systems all interconnected across multiple data centers through fiber and other uh, methods of connection. And they're running all of these dis different systems. And um, we're generating so much data. Mm -hmm. um, I had uh, Nick Geis in from Georgia Tech not long ago talking about um, archival data getting moved to DNA, synthetic DNA for retrieval. Just to me, it blows my mind that we could put electronic data on basically this synthetic carbon form in their early days, but it's promising. And um, But we have the ability as we turn on more and more sensors to generate an enormous amount of data. Uh, how in a modern neural network, you were talking earlier about in some systems, there's a saturation point in others. You know, one of the things that we have to be careful of in our data centers is running out of space is a real thing, not just for that physical machine, but the uh, hard drives and the data things that they live on and the the energy necessary to keep those. So we're constant innovation in how do we store, access, read data, et cetera. When, you, when you're developing the networks, are there, is there a, um, is it just a matter of more, 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 or is there a, um, is there a point at which, man, if we get this much data, we're in really good shape? How, how, do, you, how do you manage through that? And where do you go get data from to feed the machines? Uh, well, yeah, that's an in, in, interesting question. So I, like the more data, the better currently. Okay. But everyone, the whole field realizes that doesn't, scale that shouldn't be like that right. and the more when i mean the more data i mean um, very specific kind of data um, that uh, we call it supervised learning there should be a data input and the output available for this input what should be produced mm. if it's a classification problem what's on the picture for example cat dog mm -hmm. boy girl mm -hmm. uh, some 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 class if right. it's a regression problem uh, what's the height of the person, mm. uh, or what's the age of the person? Mm -hmm. You've seen you've seen those online yeah. uh, tools. Uh, but uh, the other kinds of data, much much more prevalent, is when just the input is available with no explanation. 
So we're at the stage where we're trying to figure out, yes, big data, more data is good, mm-hmm. but can we just learn without a teacher? Without, mm-hmm. in uh, We call it unsupervised learning mm-hmm. uh, uh, mode. Um, and there, there is a lot of research, uh, how to like um, say how kids play. Mm-hmm. You don't, you're not with them, you're not teaching them, but uh, they break stuff mm-hmm. and see what happens. Mm-hmm. So we call this regime self-supervised. It is kind of supervised. Mm-hmm. You break and you see the result. Oh, mm-hmm. okay, if I do this, this happens. Right. Um, so we, we're figuring out how to do that. Lots of data, lots of experimentation. But right. to your, so, so far, Please do collect and save mm. all yeah. the data until we figure out, uh, you know, wh- how, what's how usable, to, what's, what's usable, what's not. But yeah. uh, recently, uh, some research group, small research group from Sony Corporation published a very interesting uh, paper. What we can do now with those neural networks is uh, uh, gen- make a neural network, say, listen to a bunch and bunch of um, musical recordings, uh, songs. And then what happens, it figures out the statistics of all of our music. Like uh, by, by figuring out the statistics. Like what hertz it plays at, what tempo it plays at, how long it plays, uh, what do they more, mean? More of just the frequency of the frequency, uh, like ups yeah. and downs and things like that. Like imagine a good artist that can draw photorealistic pictures, yeah. uh, sees your picture in kind of like very, very small blurry format mm-hmm. and figures out and draws you fully right. from from their knowledge of human anatomy right. of like uh, and everything. And you look at it, yeah, it's like, looks right. just like you because they know a lot about humans. Right. So what Sony done is they took very uh, highly compressed MP3 with mm-hmm. very low bit rate mm-hmm. and a neural network takes them and turns them into high bit rate audio. Wow. Because the the music is there, right. but it's just like uh, you know the quality is very poor. Right. So it fills in the gaps because it knows how music should sound. Right. So we can we can help data centers right. in the environments where like music, right. where we know a lot about, right? right? Uh, or images. Right. With images, Google Pixel phone. Uh, Seven, the one that they just uh, right. uh, releasing, has this feature when if you took a blurry picture. It makes it uh, sharp. How does it? Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know exact the algorithms, right. but I, 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 I've seen uh, how that works. Basically, it fills in with the prior information of how, like, it's blurry. You don't right. even know. You know it's a person, but right. you don't know. Like, and well, you can figure out more statistically likely right. face with this kind of blurriness. Right. What will it look like? And uh, I've seen, I've seen fun, uh, fun stuff when somebody took those. Uh, first Soviet uh, pictures from Mars uh, mm-hmm. when the rover landed and then crashed, but right. the, the pictures came through. Right. And they tried to put it through a neural network to enhance it. Right. And uh, it put a Volkswagen Golf uh, <laughs> on, on the side. <laughs> and somebody somewhere is like, I knew it! <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But because of the statistics, oh, it looks like Arizona. Right. Like there must be some car there. <laughs> That's hilarious. It It is... Um, I want to come back to that. I don't want to go to sort of the, the some of the dangers I imagine with something like that. But before I get there, um, how when I hear technology like this, I also see or I imagine 
the hardware or the infrastructure behind it to do it. So when we say, for example, I was talking to somebody about quantum computing, and they're like, look, here's the promise of it. There's still a lot to be done, but what a lot of people don't think about, unless they're somebody directly in the um, creation of the infrastructure for it is, these computers have to, are this big and they're this powerful and they have to operate at this temperature. And like, this is a very specific environment for these things to work in. When we think about a neural network, how, how big of a system is that? Is that a little bitty system? Is it a massive system? Like, how does that work? Uh, so big data and computation. Um, Again, uh, I, I know multiple angles how to tell neural network story. Okay. But let's just pick an angle. Sure. And people will get annoyed at me that I'm not fully <laughs> correct, but I'm sort of correct. Right. It's one, in one way. So um, we should be thankful to game industry, and, uh, computer game industry, right. and big data uh, movement for having neural networks uh, revolution or, I mean, it's... Neural networks been around, right. but they were kind of dormant. People couldn't get them to work right. Only in some niche areas, physicists right. and uh, electrical engineers kept using them. Everyone else, like in machine learning, especially, right. was using something else. Right. Like they, they're a solution to a problem that didn't exist. Uh, well, they didn't work that well. Okay, they required and still require a lot of futzing and uh, gardening type of right. work when you do experimentation and you spend a lot of time before you make them to work. Right. It's just now became worthwhile doing. And okay. so um, also with all of those uh, vector inputs and multiplications and summations that I described in the beginning, mm -hmm. You need a lot of computational resources but that basically do linear algebra. Mm -hmm. And linear algebra algorithms were developed in the 50s and 60s for, uh, for uh, when Fortran was there. Mm -hmm. And we still use some of them, linear algebra package, and thanks to all the engineers and inventors who developed that, right. uh, those algorithms. But the hardware, HPC, mm -hmm. Lots of CPUs, multi-core, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. It still wasn't up to speed. Luckily, gamers needed tons and tons and tons of triangles on yeah. the screen to be computed and recomputed so they can run and shoot. Right. And uh, I think the first was 3DFX company who was uh, has commercialized an accelerator right. as a, a, a separate device, right. a separate uh, chip. Was that the Voodoo 3DFX? Yes. yes. Yeah, I yes. had one of those cars yes. because I would race online racing <laughs> or land racing and I needed uh, one of those cards. Well, too bad they went bankrupt. <laughs> they and, uh, did. Yeah, but, but the first people always do, yeah, don't yeah. they? Yeah, unfortunately. Unfortunately. It's like, yeah, well, but we remember them in yeah. our heart. Yes, uh, but then NVIDIA <laughs> and other companies, they came, and uh, <clears throat> I, I remember I was in Los Alamos National Lab in 2002 at the time, and there were some enthusiasts there that, uh -huh. hey, let's use those uh, graphics cards for computation. Right. Well, all they're doing is matrix multiplication, right. let, let, and, and that the... Those are early uh, adopters, right. first people who were like, we're not gamers, right. but we realize the potential. We can right. use those graphics cards. They right. are graphics cards. They're called GPU, which GPU, is general. Yeah. Well, they officially, when they started to be used for computation, they were called GGPU, General Graphics Processing Unit. Right. That To say, not just graphics right. or something like that, but right. then GGPU doesn't sound good. Right. Uh, Sounds like a foreign country. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> that has gloomy weather. <laughs> okay, GG, okay. Uh, but then um, what happened, uh, we had 
this good hardware that in 2012 was only giving five-time improvement compared to CPU. But right. five-time improvement, imagine you spend 24 hours waiting for your computation uh, to right. end, or you're spending, what, three hours, four hours? Five, right. Five, uh, so uh, four hours, I guess. Four, uh, that's better. Right. So it's around five, six times improvement. Right. Uh, People started using them, and that's what got us where we are now. Because Nvidia started building better hardware. Now the, the now the differences are huge. It's exponential. I've, times, yeah. I've been to Nvidia, but um, I'm not much of a video gamer anymore. But I've seen some of the new systems and what they do with ray tracing and their modeling. Oh, we don't need that, and it's we don't. Uh, phenomenal. But the power of the card to do that. It's unbelievable. But anyway, so... Yeah, but we don't need that. Uh, we only care about matrix multiplications. Right. Accident, almost accidentally. Right. Those uh, graphical processing units were the best thing to do matrix multiplications, matrix algebra. Right. And when we compute, um, when we run our neural networks, that is the main operation, matrix algebra. Mm. And so the larger the matrices, the easier you can take um, advantage of parallelism mm -hmm. and uh, we try to to do that we try to put larger matrices larger models and then we can um, it's like uh, buying uh, in bulk uh, you're paying more right. but per unit you're paying less right. so that's that's what we're doing and so um, but there is a danger with this uh, with GPUs and matrix multiplications um, because, well, matrix multiplications and parallel computation are connected. Those Fortran people back in the days right. developed algorithms for par uh, parallelized uh, matrix multiplication okay. to speed up things. People are still creating multi-core uh, uh, computers, like with hundreds and thousands cores, but they're impossible to program. Mm. We don't have a good programming system for general programming of mm. those parallel uh, devices. Uh, we don't have good mental models for developers. To How, how do I take any random problem and how mm. do I split it such that it's efficient on a multi-core system? Right. But with matrix multiplications, somebody already done that for us. Mm. If you can represent your problem as a matrix multiplication, you can take advantage of highly parallel, super fast um, hardware. Mm -hmm. So this is a blessing mm -hmm. for current architectures, mm -hmm. but not for all. It's also a kind of a trap mm -hmm. because if you're thinking, if you're thinking about AI, mm -hmm. remember our abstract idea is to create an algorithm that learns right. from smaller data, best uh, way. Mm -hmm. But what we are trapped in now, in a sense, is that um, we need to create algorithms that can work with matrix multiplication because that's our um, that's the the way for us to take advantage of the hardware. Right. Right. So it's kind of a coevolution of hardware, algorithms, ideas, and the data. Mm. So when you have a lot of data laying around, the gamers come up with hardware. Somebody figures out how to put all of that together. The algorithms are there since the 80s, mm -hmm. the neural networks. Mm -hmm. Everything together, it's kind of a nice marriage, lucky spark. And 2012, when everything started, uh, those neural networks started beating all of the competitions and industry was like, oh, we don't want to miss uh, the boat. Right. Uh, we need to put a lot of money and right. start working with it. That, that's how I seen it happen. Right. How, so we've talked a lot about 
sort of what it is. Actually, I have one more question related to that. When I think of AI, I think of narrow AI and general AI. I, I'm sure there are other ways to describe it, but those are the two that have super intelligent, super intelligent. Um, there's a lot of conversation about these very narrow applications. Um, you were, in a way, you were describing this in the beginning. These simple problems, simple things. I'm using simple in quotes, but uh, compared to a iRobot, they're they're simple um, and very specific applications. Should we think of neural networks like that? There is the 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 maybe the mecca. The you know when we get to paradise, whenever that looks like, it's this general um, neural network. But on our way there, we got to have these little slivers, and those are narrow. We're finding a narrow thing that we can define the problem that the hardware can solve for. And, and we work on that? Is that how we should think of it, or should we think of it differently? Um, it's a debatable it's a topic. Um, okay. So my personal take on it is that we will have like an, assemb uh, like an ensemble, uh, assembly of different things. Mm. Like in our brain, we have a unit that is responsible for speech, uh, for hearing. Mm. The neural networks specialize, mm. and so we have specialists and we have generalists. So we don't—we're not at a generalist stage yet, but I don't think it will be one and the, th the, the same thing. Okay, it will be like okay. Well, we're almost perfected speech generation or uh, conversational um, generation, text generation. Right. Yeah, text text was the right word with language. Uh, models mm -hmm. that are trained by predicting missing masked out words. So mm -hmm. we take all of the text that we can get to, uh, take a sentence or a paragraph, mask out some words, and tell the network to fill the gaps, and then penalize it if it did it incorrectly. Right. And now start talking with it, and then this engineer from Google uh, talking about sentience already right. because they're so good. So and I know how those th systems work. Yeah. And like, there's there's no there's no intelligence even there. It's right. just forward computation. So it's more like an associative memory. But then it's making me think about our ability to produce good language. There's <laughs> no thinking behind it. Right. It's a skill. Right. It's like you just train to generate those words smoothly by doing it over and over again. Right. But it doesn't mean you're intelligently thinking about what to say and like right. the, there is logic. So, right. but. Take all of those pieces together, and then take, put some intelligence, whatever, like, right. just ma ma magic thing. Right. I don't know what intelligence is yet, right? Uh, and put it behind it so it can use those systems. And it's more of like, um, like a collective uh, thing uh, that puts speech, uh, um, text hearing, uh, sound, uh, vision, everything mm -hmm. together. And then you have something that an agent that can operate in our world, mm -hmm. intelligent agent that can operate in our world. But it's not just a soup, right. uh, like a stone soup. It's not like throw right. things together. It has right. to be done. I think we are missing um, uh, some principles of how intelligence works just now. And so that we can't talk about general intelligence yet but narrow intelligence is still fantastic yeah. because we can solve so many problems as we talk about these tools and these technologies at the same time it, it regularly reminds me how remarkable human beings are like it just is um uh, the ability to learn 
the ability to adapt, the ability to communicate and express, and these little carbon-based things that are still so mysterious in so many ways, the complexity of the eyeball, the just the... Somebody said recently we had a... Um, health situation in a in a friend's family and he said something and i'm sure this has been said a million times one way or the other on the one hand it's amazing how resilient human beings are on the other hand it's amazing how fragile we are like it's you know and and there's not always a rhyme or reason when we went through the pandemic how and some people just so resilient so amazing and then and then for uh other situations just um catastrophic it's uh Anyway, not much to do with neural networks, but just reminds me as we're pursuing solutions to things that augment human beings, I, at least I help or help human uh, beings flourish, yeah. how much we unveil of the complexity of our brain and our bodies. No, but I, I, I actually like what you said about uh, how fragile and resilient. I, I am um, turning a little more cynical towards humans by looking at how we figure things out how things right. work like for for example I'll look at this language uh, model right it's what I tell my students in the class like we don't actually need brains to speak well right like, and it's been it's been a uh, it's been an iconic um, indicator of whether a human is smart or not right how well a person speaks right and like now we have a machine that speaks super well, writes paragraphs and text of very smooth, very perfect vocabulary and everything. Right. Zero brain or right. zero intelligence. Right. Like there is no, so that's that's very that's very interesting. Teaches us about ourselves, and I think the fragility that you mentioned mm -hmm. uh, in humans mm -hmm. kind of transfers into neural networks. We see similar kinds of fragility uh, in uh, learning and failing failure modes. Well, there is another kind of parallel conversation topic about embodiment. Do we need embodiment uh, to, to... What does have, that mean, embodiment? It, it's like right now, our algorithms are just things running in, on a CPU inside of RAM. Right. They don't have hands. They don't have any things to go, to right. move around, to touch things and things right. like that. So there is a camp that says, uh, well, only when our AI has a body, then we can hope mm. to get to general AI because then they will move around and interact with the world through sensory system and um, yeah, everything, making decisions, getting in trouble, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And there, there is another camp, well, it's easy to say, uh, to, to hear like, well, why? Uh, we may not need any of that. Right. Uh, it's maybe, our, well, our thinking is in our heads uh, right. and more of a, uh, plat uh, Platonian sense, uh, mm -hmm. like it's just logical. Right. It, like we don't we don't need to actually do the actions. Right. But the truth probably is in between somewhere. It's I love the philosophical. This it's amazing to me how often we end up in a philosophical discussion as technologists. Um, I personally weigh in on. Um, I think to be human beings is are a blend of consciousness. Uh, for lack of a better word, I don't. Some might say a spirit or whatever, but or soul, however you want to describe it, but certainly consciousness, the non-physical of us, and physical. And to me, it seems like to realize um, 
the 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 most uh, comprehensive experience as a human being is that combination of things: the ability to think, the ability to um, ingest and experience the embodiment to experience uh, these things. Now, there are people that, through tragedy or genetic mutation or whatever, don't have all of the senses available to all human beings. Um, or, or they're cut off. But I, I think that's the, from my philosophical view, that's the, the fullest expression. And yet there are so many people that are interested in how do we get our consciousness into silicone or some, you know, some other method. And, um, and maybe we could talk about that later, uh, the philosophy of the ethic around it. And, um, and I will here have ethicists of humanists, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, atheist, whatever, kind of when they consider like, well, what happens though? What kind of human being is that if we're only consciousness? I mean, maybe that's liberating, maybe it's exhilarating, or maybe there's a, a consequence that's, you know, catastrophic. We just don't know. But it's this interesting um, uh, conversation about if if we remove the physical and we concentrate only on the um, or primarily on the the conscious part of us, are we still fully human? Are we a different than a full human? And what are the consequences of that? I don't know. We could we could take this conversation way sideways, but it happens all the time. Whether they're a programmer or they're a material scientist or they're whatever, somehow this philosophical conversation works its way in. Maybe that's just the human condition. Like we, we bring it all the time. What do you think? Well, it's uh, something that drives us or something that we want to drive us. We need motivation. Mm. And why are we, well, sometimes just uh, dopamine is of solving a problem is yeah. a good motivation, but usually we need something more. And um yeah, of course. Of course. Then, then, yeah. What, 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 what you're saying is that uh, it becomes the driver. Yeah. But uh, you, you said you're you're saying consciousness. Mm -hmm. But do we need consciousness for, or like, is consciousness the same as intelligence? I don't know. I do know a bunch of University of Georgia fans, so we could probably get into a big argument there. But uh, what when. when Tell me what you think the difference is, or how would you explain the difference between intelligence and consciousness? Well, uh, it de again depends. So, sure. uh, intelligence um, is more of a problem solving in uncertain situations, okay. ability to sol to adapt uh, to the situation and continue to solve the problems right. in, in the in the primitive senses, like right. continue to exist. Right. By solving, by adapting, by changing, by right. doing action. That's intelligence. Uh, consciousness is more self-awareness. Mm. And there is a strong argument that, uh, well, in a primitive sense, it's mm -hmm. self-awareness, but uh, many people assign right. many, many meaning, which, which I don't ascribe to, and it's very difficult for me to argue or not even argue, right. just because I, I don't quite understand, just in, right. all, in all honesty. Right. But as self-awareness, there is an argument that once you have a moving organism mm -hmm. that actually starts moving around, that's an argument for, towards embodiment, mm -hmm. uh, then you have to have self-awareness. You need to know where you are sure. versus not you. But even when you start thinking, I think, like um, in Solaris uh, the uh, of Stanislav Lem, the ocean, the sentient ocean in one of the planets, 
is already there is you and there is everything else. So once there is this divide uh, between, like there is consciousness already, it's a feeling or realization of self. Mm -hmm. So when you're thinking, even if you're not doing anything, I think, mm -hmm. but you're just uh, processing information, it's already there is a divide between you and not you. Right. You, you cannot equate, oh, I'm the universe. Right. It's like the, because you're getting some information that comes from outside. Right. Well, usually in the philosophical conversations that I'm thinking of, they're not trying to deconstruct themselves. They don't want to lose themselves into the the universe. There are religious philosophies like that or whatever. They want to maintain their... They want to live forever, essentially. Their unique things, their ability to have joy and or happiness, whatever that means. And so, and so they don't want to die, and they want to, they want to be able to have a permanence where they're in their mind sort of constantly evolving and learning and growing and whatever. And, um, and you can see that from Pharaoh's, you know, or the earliest writings we've got on is like, how do I get into the, you know, get, get me to somehow live forever. And it sometimes comes into conversations uh, around technologists about how do I leverage this technology to uh, move me from this carbon form into a silicon or whatever, you know, an electronic form, but I'm still me. Whatever is the magical me inside this meat sock, how do I get that into a non-meat sock that's not as um, uh, vulnerable, at least physically, that it can be replicated? And if I lose this one, will I just turn, you know? Load the back oh, up and away a whole we go. Bag of worms, so yeah, let's not go down let's that not far. Go into Do you ever see that show, Altered Carbon? Uh, no, oh, it was really it cool. It was. Um, I don't know if the acting was great, but uh, it was. Uh, yeah, you could, you made a backup and you'd go live your life. And if uh, um, you know you something happened to you, um, you just load your backup and you could put it into the carbon form that you wanted and and away you went. I I don't know. How back to neural networks. Is, are there real world besides this? We've talked a lot about how do I identify these things, or um, you know, as we're talking about learning. Do you see in the ne in the near future, if not today, like a real application that, in spite of the complexity of the infrastructure, in spite of the size of the data sets, that there's a there is a very real way to apply them to industry, to health, to something that helps human beings flourish in a way that helps solve problems? And if so, what do you think those first uh, steps are that are really going to make a, they're really going to come to bear to help human beings have a higher quality of life or whether it's solving climate change or I, I don't know what, but I'm curious, how do you imagine the first real impacts being played out? Um, well, I think we already are seeing some. Uh, it's not just recognizing cats in YouTube videos. I mean, besides Chick-fil-A, we should put that out there. I know they've applied it to get us in and out of getting a sandwich because I see these lines that are like three lanes wide in a postage stamp lot. And somehow I get through and get my sandwich 10 times faster than the nearest restaurant. Other than that, I think that would be cheating if you use that. But... <laughs> Well, I wasn't going to, but anyways. <laughs> uh, but but uh, even recently on 
on the 5th or on the 6th of October, uh, Google's uh, DeepMind published a paper in Nature about figuring out how to uh, multiply matrices uh, 10 to 20% faster, given uh, specific hardware. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I don't know the details uh, exactly mm-hmm. yet, uh, but basically by working together um, mathematicians, uh, computer scientists from DeepMind and uh, AI algorithms figured out by uh, search, heuristic search, uh, uh, or um, heuristic here is learnable. So the neural network learns heuristic. So Mm -hmm. what's previously we would have, oh, I have a gut feeling how to do this. And uh, machine will never have intuition. That's why read sci-fi of the 60s. It's always like machines are just super logical. They don't have intuitions. Right. We're past that. Neural right. networks are this core that that is the, that brings intuition to the machines. Hmm. So we, we, we figured out um, there is a help. Um, so successful collaboration, and exa- it sounds a little bit exaggerated but because it's just an algorithm in a sense, but successful co- collaboration of humans, mathematicians, human uh, computer scientists, and AI uh, brought new mathematical engineering results. Uh, and, uh, uh, well, games aside, like Go and others, but when, uh, many many things can be represented as uh, games. Um, it didn't go anywhere, I, I don't think it did, but uh, the same team, DeepMind uh, at Google, they showed results uh, um, of... Um, Controlling power consumption at a data center, mm-hmm. uh, power power consumption and um, cooling, mm-hmm. like all of that interaction. So they also reduced twenty percent. I I don't remember exactly. Yeah, number, something like that. I remember like, something like that. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. So that if if we scale it to it, it's it's um, okay. Let's take um, combustion engine. Mm-hmm. Combustion engine in the beginning of the twentieth century. Mm-hmm was a very poor choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, steam engines were much more efficient. Mm-hmm. But 100 years later, lots of micro-optimization. Nothing changed in the right. physics of it, nothing. It's just micro-optimizations, playing, people, engineers, playing, playing, and changing. We have very efficient combustion engines now. Right. Are we at the optimum? I doubt. Right. So I think heuristics, the, uh, the neural networks, uh, Right. narrow AI algorithms right. can help us to optimize the hell out of those things. Right. Like like anything we have, we can optimize and make them better. And by making them better, it overall for the like all all people on earth, that's right. a huge, huge impact and efficiency. Yeah. Uh, th- well, one of the very promising um, it's energy. Mm. The cheaper we make energy, the more things we can do. Right. E equals mc squared. We right. can do anything we want. We can right. produce matter if it's. I mean, it's, right. we're very far from yeah. that when we yeah. can. But think about uh, the uh, uh, fission energy, tokamaks, and things. Uh, we're still unable to control the plasma, and if we can use AI to control the plasma to stabilize the plasma, so we can ignite those uh, local right. suns uh, right. to produce energy. That will be huge. Right. And this is constant control. People turning dials, no, right. no, that's that's like impossible. Or, so it has to be heuristical and real time. And right. that that's, I think, if there is something there, the, the only way is probably with AI. 
Yeah. But climate change, um, I don't remember the author, but uh, there is a book called Nova Scene. Uh, it's a, about like the new era of human and AI cooperation, mm -hmm. and uh, the author considers... Is it fiction or nonfiction? It's kind of a nonfiction. It's called um, Nova Scene? Yeah, Nova Scene. Okay. Uh, like a, mm, the new era. Uh, okay. And it's about how AI is working together with the humans to clean up the planet, basically right. take care of the planet. Yeah. But but it's more of when we have lots of data, lots of information, and we don't have rules or principles yet, but we need to act. Mm -hmm. In those situations, neural networks are very helpful because they can figure out the patterns of how to go from what we observe uh, to some action that will lead to desired outcome, even without, without clear knowledge of uh, what's going on, what did the neural network learn? Well, my personal agenda is uh, to uh, take neural networks that perform really well in biomedical um, uh, context, in mm. brain imaging and mental, mental disorders. If say they, uh, just giving a, a mm. little uh, example, the mental disorders diagnosis uh, like schizophrenia, bipolar, and mm -hmm. um, uh, other mental disorders is done by behavioral questionnaires, behavioral interaction of the doctors. What we're trying to do at the trend center where I work is uh, take the data, neuroimaging data, and try to see if the, a neural network can reproduce predictions or diagnostic markers of doctors mm. just from the data. They don't see behavior at all. Right. But the data you can measure from anyone. It's right. like you don't need to talk and to see. If they can, then what I want to do is the next step is to see what it is doing, where it is looking, how, why, mm -hmm. to make those accurate predictions to be as good as doctor. And then in in this sense, we can use neural networks for discovery. That's that's my dream, and uh, right. many people share that. It's not just the tools, right. but also if they can do something better than we can without us teaching them explicitly, we can learn from them what what is there. Yeah. Well, it, it's a complicated topic, but I mean, that's uh, but but that's the hope, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about. Is that's the hope? Is I, I so just to to say it back to you, make sure I got it right. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, a, a in general, a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a medical professional would interview a human being and based upon some series of interviews and the um, the, res the, the responses of that patient, they could then make a diagnosis of whether there is a mental illness and if so, which one. And then the goal of a neural network that's specifically trained in this could look at the image of a human being and the brain the yeah. brain and um and could say look i guess the goal or the way that you would teach it is the this number of here's a here's a sample set of 10 million brains this percentage of those 10 million brains have been diagnosed with something and so it would learn these are images without a diagnose a mental diagnosis and these are and then from there he's are these are the subcategories and it would get enough training and enough it would learn enough and then continue to iterate on its learning that it could without looking at the behavior later because it's got an image in its mind of what a uh bipolar 
brain image would look like because of some identifiers within the mass of the brain, it could it could draw a conclusion and say this is a 30% probability, 90%. Pro-. Like it would make a guess. It would make a hypothesis. It's coming to the same conclusion, the hope is, as the doctor, but instead of asking questions, it's looking at images. Is that the right it's idea? It's looking at images at brain. We have we, we have different modalities of uh, that we collect from the brain. So it's uh, dynamic, not just the static images, right. but the working brain, like a, a, a human is uh, laying down in the scanner for five minutes and right. we're just recording whatever happens in their head. Right. And so it's just this thinking process, right. quote-unquote. Um, yeah, uh, and uh, we, if the neural network can reproduce the diagnosis or right. a percentage of uh, reassuredness of right. some confidence right. of, uh, okay, this person has bipolar with uh, this probability, uh, then we can learn from neural network. What is it looking at? And then we can build, uh, we can formulate hypothesis and do um, interventions so that we can establish causal links from that. The mm. neural network is purely currently purely observational. It's right. just correlation, the kind of correlation that is not causation. Like, okay, if it sees uh, uh, the rooster, uh, you know, uh, hears the rooster, okay, right. the, the, the rooster makes the sun go up. Uh, it's right. like it can predict. Uh, it, it, right. it, it will make those... Uh, Conclusions right. because they can't hunt, they right. they they correlate it very very highly. Right. So, but maybe we can learn about the brain something like that that neural network learn and then think like, oh, okay, well, let's kill the rooster and see if the sun comes up. Like, right. like, right. An interventional right. experiment, experiment Let, like let's of that sort. Silence the rooster. Some of my audience would be like, "Gosh, these guys are so bloody." No, we'll just we'll just let it sleep later. See if the sun still comes up. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm well, with but, you. But, but let me ask you this. So, so many things came to my mind, and I know we don't, we, we still have time, but we don't have this much time. But I'm curious about this. I'm almost thinking of, do you ever see the movie Minority Report or read the book Minority Report? Uh, it's on my list. I, okay. I, I, well, anyway, I know of the movie. And so like, they yeah, have yeah. what's called a precog, right? Yeah, yeah, Look, yeah, we're yeah. looking at this. Now, they're a little bit different because they're looking at time. But it almost, so my friend and I sometimes get in these, he's brilliant genius guy um uh, i'm not going to let him know that i said that about him but he's a brilliant genius guy and he's we were having a conversation about some of these services where you can submit your dna and they tell you your uh, genetic history or as close as they can and he said just imagine as this thing iterates like at some point hopefully in the future it can not only help you know police solve crimes because you're some distant relative of whatever but Look, you, they can look at your they can look at your DNA and recognize patterns of you're predisposed to certain things, and so you can change diet, you can get introduced to medicines, or like all these. I said, yeah, that's the optimist view. But what happens? Um, the pessimist view, and I'm going to play that role for just a moment. Um, and that is, um, oh, the government or the insurance company or whatever says, hmm, if this human being is allowed to reach, you know, adulthood, the cost to the system is this much because they're going to have these genetic problems. They're going to have this emotional problems. They're going to predispose to hurting people. They're going to, uh, this is a sociopath or a psychopath, you know, burgeoning and, and we should, we should intervene and take action. And I'm a very libertarian person. And so I, it's, and I recognize there's this tension between 
preemptive and not preemptive. Um, and that I don't know that that's going to be solved, certainly not in this conversation. But to what degree, if a neural network is saying, hey, let's just keep it simple. I'm, I'm evaluating things in the context of this as mental health um, predictor, for example. I, as a parent, would love to know that information, but then again, what do I do with it? Do I treat my children? Do I start having conversation? Am I just a, uh, am I observant? Is my observant then influencing how they're going to be? Like, you can just in this spiral, what, what would we do with that information if it's able to start making predictions? And how do we keep, I'm always thinking about security and privacy. How do I keep the state in this conversation out of interfering for the greater good with uh, who I am as a human being? Or do you guys as scientists, it's, that's, that's a question for somebody else. I don't know if this is, this seems like it's an ethics question, but as you develop the technology, do you think about this as well? Uh, yeah, but I'm with uh, Bacon there. Knowledge is power, right? Right. So the like, it's better to know than not to know. Right. Even though if the knowledge is fearful. Uh, right. Because we can, uh, like, say the genetic information. Genetic information is not um, a cause or like a direct cause or hundred percent right. guaranteed. It sure it. it it's predisposition. So as you said, like I would want to know if I have a a friend of mine who is a run half marathons or whatever, had a significant cardio event. And I guarantee you, Sergey, if me, him and you were in this room and said, somebody in that room is going to have a heart attack, a thousand out of a thousand would not have guessed him. And yet he took a hot bath one night and had a heart attack. I'm 70 pounds overweight. He's five years younger than me. Spectacularly. And they only, and he lived miraculously, amazingly. Thank God, um, one of the lucky ones, and no significant damage. It was it is as good an outcome as those things can be. Genetically, if you had a tool like what you're talking about that could look at um, and say, "Hey, your body is predisposed to blockage and these things that." are really difficult to detect until post-event, and that usually means we're all crying. I would want to know that, right? I for sure would want to know that. What I don't want is that my insurance company necessarily knows that and puts me in a certain category long before an event happens and I'm excluded from coverage for my family or whatever. I mean, that's maybe the worst case scenario or, the or you know, anyway. Yeah. But I, I'm wondering where's the boundary of these tools for diagnostics so I can make good decisions for myself as a human being and for my family without the some big brother or the state um, getting involved and saying, hey, you know, we, we want to take preemptive action or you better do this or whatever. Is that me um, overreacting to something that just doesn't, that, that the, the possible optimistic outcome is so overwhelmingly good that this risk is really pretty minor? Well, um, we always have to fight for our freedom, yeah. right? So you can't just uh, relax and say, okay, do whatever with our information or whatever. Like then yeah. the, the bad actors will take over and, right. like naturally. But at the same time, there are solutions to the problem that you described. Even if it's a uh, small part of the population that maybe or that has this problem that you can right. predict and uh, 
then they suffer, say, if they don't change the ways. Right. But maybe we can develop a drug. The development of that drug is cheaper overall than not knowing anything at all and getting random people dying at their right. job who are already very important and uh, economically for right. the whole society. Right. So so it's it's even like thinking from the business perspective e economically right. it may be better to know and treat those people uh while they're kids. Yeah. Because you don't you never know what they grow. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a very complicated topic in terms of human development. Yeah. Even like I believe people or children who have suffered uh, turned out to be better humans and yeah. overcome the suffering yeah. because they know, they have empathy, they understand uh, yeah. you know, the, the difficulties that other people are facing. Yeah. So you can't just say, okay, let's make everybody happy by uh, giving them a shot of <clears throat> right. whatever, opioids. Right. Um, it never works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. never works. Human history is full of, we do best in the struggle and I'm I'm not I'm not advocating for human suffering yeah, yeah, yeah. at all. That's not what I mean. But our bodies do best when they move and they struggle against weight. We we do best in a gravity like ours. Our blood doesn't work. Our flow like nothing in us works metaphorically, physiologically, physically, uh, philosophically is what I was trying to say, and physically without some struggle. Um, we're at our best. I agree. I'm all about that data. I would love, truly. I mean, I genuinely am an optimist. I just, I'm always uh, thinking about the security and privacy. It's my data, um, and we're not going to have a conversation today about blockchain or Web 3.0. But I'm hopeful that those tools, or whatever the next beyond tool looks like beyond that, allows me to collect the data. I used to be so anxious. Um, when it, uh, about the idea of somebody getting hold of my genetic data. And I don't know of any pre-existing condition that I might have other than moobs. Um, that's the, I think I probably exercise and get rid of those. But, it, but I just don't want uh, my personal data, my healthcare data in particular out there. I want to control it, but I still want it. I, I, although it's a weird thing, I don't know how far into the future, hey, a guy like you with your genetics and your diet and your level of stress, you're going to make it to 64. Congrats. Wait, what? You know, I, how can I get that to 90? Like how much future data is valuable? But no, in all seriousness, um, I've had to go to therapy before. I've had to take medicine before. I don't know that I had a genetic precondition, but it would be wonderful if there are tools out there that could help me, whether it is a, um, you know, just help me if I want to take action, if I choose to, to create a path forward for me in the most physical and mental health, healthy way uh, possible, which I don't believe means avoiding struggle, but it may be diet and other things, uh, or even sometimes helping my genetic along because I'm missing a valuable chemical or it's not at the right level or it's producing too much. And that sounds what you're saying in neural network hopefully can help us in some way there. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the hope um, that we can, uh, neural networks can inform us in the situations where uh, we don't have a full understanding yet. So right. neural networks, those narrow AIs uh, could possibly become our 
partners in discovering things about the world. Right. With generally, I am counting on it, uh, like wholeheartedly. Right. I, like that, w- it, they will be our partners uh, in discovery. Right. Because the universe is large, there is a lot of unknowable, a lot of potential problems that you right. know we need to solve. So we need help uh, right. uh, because humans are frankly very limited. Right. And, uh, so, yeah. Yeah. When when do I got to go here? When when are neural networks able to in in those sci-fi new uh, novels you talk about Isamov and others? I don't know that he calls them neural networks, but some combination of all of these systems eventually become a sentient, a self-aware spaceship. Uh, humanoid-looking robot, whatever doesn't have to be human. I know, uh, whatever you know, arachnoid uh, could be any, any, anything. But it, um, but it becomes some sort of self-aware, cognitive, sentient um, uh, being. How is that a, really a plausible scenario of any of these technologies that we're talking about in your opinion or is it just such a um, mathematical problem that it's it's just not in the way that um you know science fiction loves to portray that's really not a, a very realistic thing well i think we're far from it like very far from it but i think it should be our goal Really, as, as humans, it's <laughs> why it should uh, be our goal. I think this is, uh, in a sense, our way to immortality. Mm. By should we be immortal? Uh, well, you have children. I have children. Yeah. That's a way of, to immortality. Well, f- sure. Yeah. If our uh, whole species has yeah. children, right, gives a gives creation to next species, right. That's a way to immortality. Yeah. That's one way to think about it. Okay. Another way to think about it is space exploration. Yeah. I uh, there are two things, two ways um, to consider. One is look up at all of those soap operas about uh, space. Yeah. And I, I I'm into sci-fi, and I was looking uh, watching those a few of those movies in the week, or something right. bad happened to me. I don't know. Right. I was like, and it's all the same, all mm-hmm. the same. Lost. Uh, greed, right. like all the same, just scaled right. through universe. Right. This is just so boring. Right. So boring. It's just like all of this di- human disease spread right. through the universe. That's yeah. one thing. Right. But another thing that kind of convinced me that we are not the right uh, things or not the right creatures mm-hmm. to go into space is if you pause and just try to visualize the scale even of our solar system yeah. with respect to the light speed, right. it's empty. Right. It's, it's so empty. That's right. It's just unimaginably empty. Right. Just so, like, it's so boring for any people to travel. Right. It's like people love to have fun. We're right. animals. Right. We're, we're animals <laughs> we like that like to think of right. ourselves that we're super intelligent. They're so, so right. nice. So, but AI, the robots, if they learn how to not be bored if they have much richer internal life or something like that, that they can spend this time traveling in space. Well, hopefully they call back and tell us like as a, uh, to, as to a 
their parents right what's going on and we right. learn through them and again right. that's back looping back to my exploration exploring right. the world together so i think it's our our goal is to create but it's not like tomorrow right or it's not like anywhere near but i wonder though is adventures like that um as they it'll be curious to see if if machines can you'd you would hope that they wouldn't um carry with them greed or malice or slander or any of these other things, pride or whatever. Um, Dr. Wolpe posed this really, I don't know if we talked about it, but he posed an interesting question I heard him talk about, which is we were talking about autonomous vehicles. And one of the things that they're talking about in the ethics as it relates to autonomous vehicles is, um, and he's a thousand percent for autonomous vehicles, like the, the benefit that when you when you just look at the data of distracted human beings driving of all ages and the consequences of those things it's in every measurable way catastrophic it's it's a it's a significant problem and um loss of property loss of life injury like it's just in all these different areas he says so autonomous vehicles can bring a very direct benefit However, we're trying to give agency to a machine to make a decision where human life is involved. So if a, you know, a cataclysmic event happens and I've got to make a decision instantaneously as a machine, do I, do I make a turn over here into this crowd of people or do I turn over there and hit um, the school bus that's got a bunch of children in it? Like how do we help the algorithm make the decision? This is not a right or wrong necessarily. Lie, don't lie, steal, don't steal. It is a how do we do that? And then he said, when you extrapolate that or or take that even further, for example, to the battlefield, you we have machines now that we're trying to train them on, on the one hand, um, how many innocent uh, people or civilians in a, happen to be in a lot of the modern battlefields they're around and a, um, and a soldier gets surprised. And when soldiers that are armed get surprised, they react as all human beings do. This is irregardless of color or nation. We shoot, we defend, we whatever, and usually with heartbreaking results. And they, they didn't mean, they didn't want to hurt an innocent, but it just is what happens. And so if you've got a machine, they're not scared. They're not surprised. They're not, even if they get blown up, they're like, oh, well, let's put a new machine out there. So you get that benefit. On the other side of it, though, we're asking machines to take human life, to make a decision and kill them. So how do we do that? And um, I'm imagining these spacefarers as we, so part of the things he said that we were talking about was on the one hand to have, uh, we want empathy, to have no empathy, just rules is um, harsh judgment. You know, like for example, he said, you want to know how you get rid of cancer? Get rid of human beings, get rid of cancer. We just solve cancer for all human beings. Um so, so we want this, we want mercy and justice, right? We don't want only justice. That's its own form of wickedness. And we don't want all mercy. Then you're never just. You can steal or take or whatever. There's never any rule. There's ever never any law. Like, like, so navigating through those, I'm wondering, can we make machines that as they evolve? And I'm not saying as human beings get this right. We, it, it's kind of like the Supreme Court once said, um, we can't define pornography, but we know it when we see it. Like, I don't know when this works great, but we know what a corrupt judge is. And we know when we see mercy or empathy, um, a first-time offender, for example. Here's the rule of the law, the letter of the law, we would say. 
and you're a 16-year-old. And while the law says this, we're going to give some leeway or we're going to whatever. We're going to exercise some mercy here because we don't think applying it in the same way that we would to an adult would be just. How do you imagine we could do that with machines? Or is that just a problem to be solved another day? Or is it even important in your space fair? Oh, well, I mean, I don't think it's terribly important right now in my daily job. But right. but at the same time, I I see how important it is in the long, long term and mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things. Um, so, but some of the things about, well, when we know when we see it, especially the common, humans are very, well, in my opinion, yeah, xenophobic. What do you mean? We only think intelligent is us. Oh, yeah, well, or and, our tribe. Uh, well, the, like right. even in the general sense, even right. the most liberal, the most, right. like we ca- it's very hard for us to imagine that something not like us in some sense right. is intelligent or right. worth mercy. Worth. Right. So the, the philosophers and uh, ethicist philosophers, they're mm-hmm. trying to figure out general mathematical rules of ethics mm. versus what you just said, we would be happy with being treated as we treat others, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a general. Uh, that, that's a good, uh, right. good, good uh, solution to the right. problem, right? Two thousand years old solution, right? Is treat the others as right. you'd like to be treated. Right. So, we definitely can teach the machines to be like us, okay, with all of the imperfections, right. with all the problems that right. we have, and uh, but they they will give us the mercy, they will give us the justice, how we see it, right? As our kids learn from us, right they will learn from us. So that's that's coming, mm. I think. That's like and and then we're like, well, we don't know what is ethical in the most divine sort of right. abstract sense. Right. But this is how we do it. Do it like us. Right. And they they those algorithms will will just mimic us. Yeah. The downside is they proliferate, continue the weaknesses. But maybe we like that that we apply, that right. we we're not perfect as you said. Right. But it's functional. Right. But I think we should still keep working towards uh, higher uh, intelligence mm-hmm. that is much smarter than us. Or maybe, like, as uh, Ray Kurzweil says with the singularity, yeah. if they start improving themselves on the fly and becoming smarter exponentially, they right. get there without us. Right. But then we, at that point, will become boring for them <laughs> and not interesting at all. Right. Uh, so there is sort of my... Uh, the way the way I um, uh, calm myself down mm-hmm. uh, with respect to the problem that mm-hmm. you just said is like when they're near us, when they're as smart as we are, we're gonna blow them up. Oh no no no! no. <laughs> <laughs> they, they will be they will be, but yes, they will be just like us. Yeah. They will be just like us. But right. when they're super smart, it's like uh, when did you last time talk to an ant hill? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but they're, I, they're, but, they're, but at the same like, time, I recently mowed an anthill. You know, I wasn't oh. against them, but I wasn't for them. I didn't think protect the anthill. I just mowed it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, too many anthills. It's okay. Like we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll have one in the zoo. Right. So, well, but it, it, it means if we coexist with, we, because we are animals with the ants, we kind of share the same resources. But with AI, I don't think like with a smart AI, right. if we do ever get there, right. it, the universe is large. Right. There is lots of room for everyone. And so, yeah. 
Well, I do think that it for sure, if we're at least in the way that we can imagine, you know, the laws of physics that we know, the technologies that we know, um, not that anybody is going to come back and check this podcast, but I don't, I don't imagine. My dad was on the shuttle for 20-something years, um, one of the programmers there and on stage, state, space station for over a decade. And um, he would chuckle when we would, he would see some of the sci-fi. He loves them. I mean, we're certainly sci-fi fantasy and sci-fi geeks and nerds in my home. Um, but we just really don't have a concept of distances, even just with our own few planets and our sun and these other things. We just had James Garvin, one of the chief scientists for NASA on the program uh, a few weeks ago. He is the principal investigator on the Da Vinci Project, which is uh, um, orbiting Venus and doing a bunch of stuff. And I was like, why Venus? Like everybody's talking about Mars. And very interesting. He said, the cool thing about Venus is its atmosphere is very easy to detect. And our telescopes, um, we've got Steve Beckwith, who's head of astronomy at Berkeley, we're publishing his um, conversation we had recently in a few weeks, um, said, um, you know, these telescopes, they can't, it's harder to find Earth's atmosphere than it is other atmospheres. But we know if we see these other atmospheres, usually Earth-like atmospheres are nearby through this mathematical modeling that they do. But it, the distances are so, they're like a time machine. The distances are so great. And we are in no immediate danger of inventing it, it will literally be a miracle when we make an engine that can even get us to Alpha Centauri or something. So, um, but they're comfortable with that because we couldn't 500 years ago really conceive of the combustion engine or, you know, we had to glue feathers to frame to try to fly. And yet we're doing supersonic and we're going to the moon and whatever. So it will come. We're sure of it. So assuming we don't blow ourselves up first. But let me ask you this question, and, and maybe this is an area we can uh, uh, kind of wrap up our conversation. In talking to people about artificial intelligence, and, and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole today, maybe we can talk about another day, particularly about um, the geopolitics of AI. But one of the things that they did talk about is, look, if some of these systems get hacked, if we get into them, if a, you know, nation states aren't generally launching big aircraft carriers or whatever anymore. They're working on other tools. They're working on other systems. Um, what happens when we build these neural networks? Or is this even a, just a risk? I'm just making up my mind. So I build this infrastructure up that helps us flourish. And then somebody penetrates into them. And one of the things... When you were talking about um, the medical benefits, which I I am, the sooner that can come along, the better for who would not want um, a higher quality of life, mental health or otherwise. But in the UK, a number of years ago, this wasn't well published. It, you can find it if you look for it. A lot of their medical infrastructure, you know, they get IT staffs are notoriously understaffed. Medical hospitals in particular are usually... Um, the least funded and that certainly when you get more rural, get out of the big metro areas. So they get all this router and all these other components in, all your blood pressure machines, all your uh, health monitoring, and they plug them into the internet because that's what they do. And they come with a factory password and they come, you know, and they self-discover their IP. And in this case, these hackers um, out of a uh, enemy state or whatever, penetrated, compromised the entire infrastructure and took down, um, they did a ransomware thing, like 30 or 40% of this metropolitan area's ability to provide a hospital bed 
Um, it just brought into light what ethical hackers have talked about for a while, which is the more systems that we have, on the one hand, they can be these forces for good, but if we don't protect them, they can be penetrated and they can um, give you misleading data. It tells you your patient's going into cardiac arrest when they're not, but you treat it as if they are. Or it could tell you you've got a mental health problem when you really don't, but you start taking medicine for your mental health problem. How, as part of your discovery and part of the development of these networks, are they able to sort of learn how to check themselves, check their own integrity, check to make sure their doors are locked? When I go to bed at night, I, I make sure my windows are shut and locked and I validate these are the people that are supposed to be in my home and you know I'm sec as secure as I can. And because I live in the South and I'm a former military guy, probably my house would not be the house to kick in the door because we're well armed and that would go sideways. But it but depending upon who you are, I, I have some ability before I need law enforcement to show up to protect myself and to do a systems check. Is you're building these very powerful infrastructure, or at least potentially be very powerful, that makes them also targets. How do we make sure that they maintain their integrity? So uh, besides the direct question, you yeah. kind of started well, thinking that's me, how uh, I do I'm sorry uh, thinking me on a, no 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 but uh, like in this question you started um, me on a different path of thought is like uh, I, I'll come back to your okay. question All if, right. you, if yeah, I yeah yeah please uh, uh, about AI taking our jobs mm. uh, so yeah. it is AI taking our jobs and we do want to simplify a lot of mundane jobs even if they're sort of currently associated with intellectual job not physical right but boring mundane not creative not dangerous and dirty is what they call it yeah. dull well, dangerous and dirty yeah but i'm 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 personally against dull maybe yeah. i get like <laughs> i get bored too quickly with right. doing uh repetitive things uh but um uh we do need people in other ways our, our society our civilization is becoming very very complex we need more and more highly educated, creative people working on the problems of the kind you just described. Mm -hmm. We need more people thinking about this. And you you need a lot of education. Like I, I hope the current kids who are growing up right now go into education, spend mm -hmm. more time. It's like the, um, what is this? Uh, uh, like the, the human babies, they're uh, uh, helpless. Mm -hmm. compared compared with animal babies mm -hmm. uh, for a longer time right. and now our human babies are helpless until they graduate <sighs> from college right but I and even then you can make an argument but yes. yeah 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 but I think <laughs> I think we need to prolong that even further mm. uh, and the longer lifespan can help and to get them into the PhD level education to co right. to cope with the complexities of the kind uh, that are are more complex and more safer civilization mm -hmm. poses. But the arm race will continue. Right. The, this uh, anti-fragility of a human that you need to battle, you need to struggle to, to, to live. Um, civilization is like that too. Right. We will keep fighting. We will like the fight, hopefully it doesn't go into a war, yeah. uh, but uh, th this will continue. So we will need lots of smart people thinking mm -hmm. about, well, how do we make an AI, a learnable al algorithm uh, or learning algorithm uh, to protect itself? Or mm -hmm. we will make a garden, guardian, another AI that protects mm -hmm. and checks the whole system of the hospitals right. for intrusion. So right. those 
workers, specialists on the uh, blood uh, uh, on on whatever right. blood monitor machine, right. just cares about what they do. Right. And a, another AI system, a neural network system, is monitoring integrity and detects intrusion and, thing, right. and things like that. But we we need highly educated people, highly like not that we need to steal them from other places. Right. The whole civilization needs more. So yeah. I would rather people go into education and go into those hard, uh, not, not into education, go get education and go right. into it. This is not an easy life. It's right. just, but it's fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, it's, it is. Yeah. It's, um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm, you know, today when, when somebody comes uh, you know, in this hypothetical situation, my we're, we're, there's an emergency. My child's in the emergency room, and I show up and present myself and say, "We have this emergency situation." And and somebody walks in and they've got, they appear to have the credentials. They've got a white coat on. They've got a thing, and they say, "Hey, I'm Doctor So and So. We've diagnosed your child with this situation. We're gonna take we're gonna take them into surgery. We're gonna do these things." We believe we can save their life. It is a life-threatening thing, but here, here's what we're going to do. Why? Because they're talking to me in an emergency room, because other workers are in there not interfering with the conversation, because they have this badge on, I'm assuming they've gone to medical school. Like I have, I, I have a low barrier or low threshold that they have to convince me that they're the right person to do the job. I may be emotional, but but there's that. Whereas... If they just start, if they just walk up to me on the street and say, hey, I'm a doctor and I can, you know, whatever, have this conversation, maybe I believe them, maybe I don't. I mean, what's your CV? Who are, who are your references, right? And so I have a much higher barrier of resistance. What happens with these tools now is while I'm in what I believe is a safe place that anybody presents himself to me is credentialed, it may be a lie. It may all be... Um, Everybody in that room may be fooled, and we don't we don't know it. And they sh they demonstrated this over and over and over while they were in an ER, and um, <clears throat> it was a simulation. It's a really interesting simulation. And so they had a patient there, and they were uh, it wasn't a real human being, but they have the um, it's almost like cadaver flesh. It's synthetic, but it was a it was a person, and the machine was telling it telling these the nurses and the doctors that this was the condition. And so they were treating it and it just kept getting worse and worse. And they were reacting, reacting. They went through like four failures before they realized maybe the machines are lying to us. And because they're so conditioned as technicians to trust these machines. So what they did, what was terrifying was they, on the fifth one, they said, machines are lying. That's really not the blood pressure. That's really not the oxygen level. So they they unhooked it and they ran into the next room and grabbed the machines from the next room and brought them in. What they didn't realize was they're all the same batch. They'd all been compromised in the th same thing. And there had been no way to validate. Um, and so we trust these machines like this. One of the things, somebody once talked to me about education before, and I don't disagree with you, although I do want still plenty of plumbers and electricians and whatever in the world because I need that in my house and I don't know when a robot's going to be able to come and do that. But they pointed this out to me. They said, you know, at one point in time in the late 1930s, at that time, probably the single most educated people as a whole population on earth was Germany. And yet they still went down um, a path. And I have a, my family is Scots, Irish, and German. And so um, education without, but in and of itself does not necessarily guarantee um, a particular outcome, oh. 
but it is certainly a requirement, and our world is becoming more complicated. We've had a number of people in here that talk about innovation, and in the past, we would think about kind of like the aircraft carrier. Well, we're innovating this complex machine. They said, yes, that's, but that's a machine. We're talking about systems. They're so highly integrated. We saw this in the pandemic when this system broke. It broke so many other systems, and it's difficult to put them back together, especially when they grew so organically. And we need system or machines to help us to do that because they can think faster, more deeply, more thoroughly, and recognize patterns the human beings just can't do that quick. Well, but we need humans to create those machines. And I realize after your comment, yeah, the, the harm is already done. I'm not, I'm not claiming that educated people are the good people or the only people or like, <laughs> right. yeah, it's it's just we need we need the yeah. we need AI, to, uh, super intelligence AI, to get rid of uh, human. Uh, arrogance and all right. of that. Well, uh, I, like, I don't know if we like, could ever invent that. Well, Good I mean, luck. no, we, we leave humans <laughs> right. alone because they will remain right. as they, uh, like, we will remain as right. we are. But, uh, yeah, but I'm not fixing that problem. Right. But the, those educated <laughs> people will be as bad as anyone right. else. But, at, like, we need more people to work on the complicated problem. Right. Even the algorithms that potentially can, um, it's it's what you just said. Is like the uh, the quadcopters, uh -huh. those uh, the the flying things with the four chip uh, yeah. motors. Yeah, we couldn't do that like 20, 30 years ago. It's only with control because right. now we can use with the new algorithms that can adapt. Yeah, uh, to and that comes from the military. The the most powerful fighter jets we have, American and others. They have fly-by-wire. A human being cannot react. They're unflyable by humans. Mm -hmm. We have to have these mechanisms in there um, in order to operate them. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I, and I, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm very hopeful for those kinds of tools. Well, we've talked a lot. What, what haven't we covered that we should have? Well, covered? I don't know. Uh, I think we covered. Uh, uh, sort of neural networks 101 or uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, well more mostly philosophical aspect yeah. though but uh, I hope that was interesting uh, from my perspective and <laughs> I, I think it's fantastically interesting if people want to learn more either about you or just sort of a primer on neural networks where can they is there a is there a series or where can they go to learn more and just get themselves more educated on this topic Oh. Or if they want to follow you and your lab, where can they go? Do you publish well, regularly? Uh, well, I try to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, trendcenter.org is our center. Okay. At, uh, it's a tri-institutional center. Georgia State, Georgia Tech, and Emory put together a center that is as, as, at Georgia State. Mm -hmm. I uh, try to write something uh, uh, on LinkedIn mm. with variable success. <laughs> uh, never enough time for that, right. uh, and uh, sometimes on the topic that are not related to my work directly, but as like yeah. what we were discussing right now, so you can read something there. But about neural networks, just Google deep learning mm. on uh, YouTube, and you see a lot of um, a lot of uh, talks, a lot of uh, right. presentations. If you want mathematical side of it in a fun, visually appealing way, then uh, there is a channel on YouTube called Three Blue One Brown that mm. uh, uh, so. Uh, they, they, they have um, a very good introduction uh, to neural networks, but mathematically, uh, like how they work, like what what is happening under the hood and things like that. Uh, but very visual, right. uh, so very useful. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. I love the conversation. And um, 
uh, I know my audience will as well. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I appreciate that. Too. Yeah, good deal. Well, hey, if you've enjoyed the conversation, please like, share, subscribe, and comment. We'll see everybody next time on the QTS Experience. Take care.